been uh, going through what you might call the gospel according to Joseph in the book of Genesis. And I have chosen two sermons from that for us today. First of all, from Genesis 42. You know Joseph sold by his brothers into slavery. The Lord brings him to Egypt. There in Egypt, life is also not very good for him. But eventually, he is placed in the position of second in command in Egypt. The Lord revealed to Pharaoh, though, that there would be a famine. There would be seven years of plenty. There would also be seven years of famine. And in Genesis 42, that's where we are, where the famine has begun. Genesis 42, there we read, When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came for the famine in the land of Canaan. For the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you, and let him bring your brother, while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody. And let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul 
when he begged us, and when we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told them all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, son of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Let's sing in response to this from Psalm 81, stanzas 1, 3, 6, and 7. In our sermon, we will look broadly at the events of uh, chapter 42, but there is sort of a handle that we'll grab onto as well, and that is the second part of verse 28. There, the brothers, after discovering that there is money in their sack, we read, At this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? <clears throat> Let's sing after the sermon from Psalm 51, the first three stanzas, 1, 2, and 3 of Psalm 51. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
Are you good at fixing, repairing things? Breaking things, that's fairly easy. What about putting them back together? Do you know what type of glue to use, what sort of weld to make? Lots of things need fixing. Our phones, our cars, our bodies. But even more so, our souls, our relationships. Relationships break and need repair in this broken and fallen world. Especially in our day and age, it seems like relationships are quite the challenge. I mean, with our social media, it seems like today, with our social media, everybody seems to be horribly inconsiderate and yet terribly sensitive at the same time. We can put a man on the moon, but we struggle to be civil with, uh, with one another. But even apart from the challenges of the 21st century, we are sinners. And sinners have always been terrible at relationships. That is the number one consequence of sin. In Galatians, the Apostle Paul tells us, if someone is sinning, living in sin, we are to restore that person in a spirit of gentleness. We are to restore someone. So not just point fingers, not just dump on someone about what's wrong. In a spirit of gentleness? So not being harsh or judgmental. We are to be good at bringing healing. That is the sort of situation that Joseph finds himself in our chapter. Now, who would have expected this scene? Twenty years or so have passed since his brothers almost killed him out of pride and jealousy. Since then, Joseph's life has taken all sorts of twists and turns. And Joseph could have died for all the brothers know. But here they all are together again. And Joseph, even though he's been so badly mistreated, struggles to keep his tears from them. Clearly, the joy of seeing his brothers being reunited with them is very much alive in his heart. Yet, it's not so simple Things have been said, and worse, things have been done. Terrible things. Joseph here cannot simply just sort of say, It's me, Joseph. It's too simple to say when things in our relationships are broken, well, forgive and forget. Now, there's work that Joseph has to do to repair. To bring true reconciliation and healing. Joseph will feed his brothers in this time of famine. But he also needs to do more. Their souls need to be restored. In this too, Joseph is a pointer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Relationships need to be restored within the family of God. And what's more, even between us and 
our great Father, the Holy God. That's what Joseph does. That is what the Lord Jesus Christ does. I put the sermon then under this theme. God's servant will bring life to those that are broken. And we'll look at two things. If if things are to be restored, there needs to be a trembling, first of all, before judgment, and secondly, before grace. So at the beginning of chapter 42, just as God said, we find out the climate has changed. The Nile River flooded regularly year after year. Now the unthinkable happens. Seven years of famine begin. And the climate catastrophe here in Genesis is perhaps worldwide. Father Jacob learns he is in Canaan. There is grain somehow in Egypt. The Egyptians have somehow prepared for this. He says to his sons, Why do you keep looking at each other? Go down to Egypt and buy grain. That's a bit tough to psychologize here. It's not always a good thing to do when it comes to Scripture, but do you not get the picture at the beginning here that the brothers are sort of reluctantly, well, just standing there. They they don't want to go to Egypt. I'm sure they would have known there's grain in Egypt. The news gets around in Egypt. They know that's where Joseph ended up. They're not too excited when they hear the name of that country. Perhaps, if this is not too much, we see these brothers here burdened by their guilt that they've tried to live with year after year after year. Guilt can sort of paralyze you. But at Father Jacob's insistence, they go down to Egypt. And it just so happens They come before Joseph. Joseph probably did not handle every request for grain. He may have handled, though, the requests of foreigners personally. So somehow, these ten brothers end up before Joseph himself, and they bow low before him. And so that dream, that double dream that Joseph received earlier, the prophecy of his brothers bowing before him in Genesis 37 is fulfilled. You probably know the story. But really, who would have guessed that it would have turned out like this? I mean, it's many, many years later. It's in another country completely. But the Word of God is being fulfilled. John Calvin says here that the providence of God is often a bit like a, a labyrinth or like a maze We do not always understand the way that God is leading our life, the twists and turns. Yet there is a path and a point to it all. Because look, in the end, lo and behold, the word of God is fulfilled. Now as Joseph's hungry brothers bow before him, Joseph has several options. I believe there's at least four things, maybe more, that he could do. First of all, he could simply deny them their request for grain. He could even justify that. You know, an eye for an eye, tooth for 
a tooth. Time these brothers learn some justice. No. You can't have any grain. Secondly, he could have given them grain and told them to go home without telling them at all who he was. You did not want me in your life. Well, I don't want you in mine either. I'm not opening that chapter of my life anymore. I've moved on. Third, he could have given them grain, sort of immediately told them who he was. He could have summoned some troops. He could have gone to Canaan, check if his other brother Benjamin, his father, was still alive. He could have brought them back to Egypt right away. But none of that is going to help these brothers in their sin and in their guilt. They need to be taught repentance. And so Joseph chooses another path. He does give them grain right away, but he hides his identity. And then he proceeds to test them. And that continues into the next chapters. Joseph, through all the twists and turns and the ups and downs of his life, has tasted that the Lord is good. And that the Lord is sovereign. And that's ultimately what he wants his brothers to taste as well. See, look at verse 9 of this chapter. It is central to it. And it's a bit of a mysterious verse, verse at first. The brothers are bowing low before Joseph. They don't know who he is. And then you read in verse 9, and Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them, and he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. Read it carefully. Because it's not what you would expect. It's not, then Joseph remembered what his brothers had done to him. And he said, you are spies. Joseph remembers his dream. Joseph had named his first son Manasseh. Manasseh meaning cause to forget. God had really made him forget all the troubles that had happened to him in his father's house. Those don't dominate him and consume him anymore. He remembered his dream. And does he remember his dream and say, Aha, look. Look at you. Do you know who I am? Look at you bowing before me. You scoffed at my dream. You laughed. It is all coming to pass. Instead, he remembered his dreams and said to them, You are spies. How could that be? Remembering those dreams make him say that. You see, Joseph now understands what these dreams are all about. He knows that these dreams were not just that his brothers would reverence him, but that he would be put in a position for the blessing of his family. So that he would be a servant leader in his father's house. Perhaps beforehand. Those dreams puffed him up. Now he understands these dreams. 
That these dreams were not just about ruling, but also about serving. So what then does Joseph do? Well, in the next verses, you can see Joseph being very crafty, almost manipulative. He calls them spies. He throws them into prison. He binds Simeon before their eyes. He puts money back in their bags. Just what is going on, you might ask? Is there a sort of method to his madness? Sometimes it's a bit difficult to find out exactly what Joseph does have in his mind. We do need to be cautious here. But I think there is a broad perspective that we can see. Do you remember, for instance, Nathan the prophet coming to David after his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah? And he tells David the story about the poor man and his sheep and the rich man who steals the the poor man's little lamb. King David had been living with, covering up his sin for months. King David needed a sort of curveball or a cold shower, something that would take him by surprise and shock him. Joseph here takes a similar approach. He makes things surprisingly tough, and he also unexpectedly blesses his brothers. And all of this is to shake them up. Because there is a callous that forms over sin. And it can get very thick, very hard. First of all, Joseph accuses the brothers of being spies. That's sort of a reasonable suspicion, foreigners coming to Egypt. It also is significant, though, the Hebrew word for spies means slanderer or tale-bearer. Would the brothers start to think, we might not be bringing a report about Egypt back home. We did, though, bring back a report to our father about our brother. And it was full of holes. We claim to be honest men, but we're actually not. Joseph makes them feel that they are in over their heads. He makes them feel that they are powerless. That is a new thing for these conniving brothers. All of this is to awaken things in their sleepy, sinful hearts. You see, what the brothers begin to realize, as they stood helplessly before one of the most powerful men in the world, that that too was just but the beginning. Would they realize that they stand helplessly before the Holy God in their sins? Would they learn what it is like not to be in control? Because in their sin with Joseph and their cover-up of it, well, that's exactly what they tried to be and what they thought they were. 
Would they abandon all their pride and their cleverness, cleverlessness and realize that they are at the mercy, not just of Joseph in Egypt, but of the Lord in heaven? Doesn't seem like Joseph is being vindictive. We know that's not the case. Because in a moment he weeps so much he has to leave the room. It's not the case that Joseph is angry and has to gradually warm up to them. See, look at how things unfold. When the brothers get out of prison, they start talking. For 20 years, they've been silent. They've tried to cover things up. Now, all it takes is three days. And they are talking about the skeleton in the closet. Apparently, this is the only open confession of sin in the whole book of Genesis. We are guilty concerning our brother. We saw the distress of our brother. We would not listen to his cries. It's not you, but I and we. How are relationships healed? Relationships can be healed. And we, as believers, ought to have the the greatest faith and the greatest hope in that. Even when terrible things have been done. But there are critical ingredients. Relationships are healed only when things that have been silent, that have been very maybe conveniently pushed off to the side, are brought back into the light. Things are out in the open again. Relationships are healed only as we own our actions and get rid of all ifs and buts. Relationships are healed only when we recognize that there are consequences for what we have done. We, too, need to be brought to our knees. Where there is pride and defensiveness, there will be no connection with others again. We need to be made powerless. And we need to make it clear even publicly to others, that we know that we are. We need to be broken. Broken over what we have done. The brothers here are rendered powerless as they stand before the second most powerful man in the world. Do we have that experience? We have something even greater. We Stand before the Son of God, before the crucified Son of God. And then there is that question Will we be broken as we consider Him? Will we be humbled? Will we own our actions and confess? We have done this, it's our sins that have nailed him there. Will we admit 
that our life is not in our hands, that we are not in control, no matter how much in our sins we think we are. There is not just an Egyptian governor who we ought to tremble before. There is a holy God who has every right to punish us over and over again and throw us into the eternal prison of hell. Look at Joseph in verse 18, and that's just a little glimpse of what's more. Do this and you will live, for I fear God. You'll find this throughout Joseph's discussion. He doesn't just say, I'm an honest man or I have power over you. Joseph constantly brings God into the picture. And he wants his brothers then too to realize they live before God. That's how repentance and reconciliation happen. We need to learn that we stand before God and that we tremble before Him. There is what we have done to to others in our sins, and we need to certainly own that as well. But even more so, just like David, in Psalm 51, he says, Against you alone, Lord, have I sinned. David's not trying to minimize his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah in any sort of way. He's trying to say, my sin against others was great, but yet compared to what I've done to my God? Wow, it is like, that is nothing. Against you alone, Lord, have I sinned. That is the only way that we begin to live with each other when we first of all live before our God and fear Him. (coughs) That takes us to our second point. This is the matter of the money in the sacks, the second thing in this chapter. What's going on here? John Calvin suggests Joseph knows his family probably needs money. Eh, perhaps. Joseph is certainly making it clear he's not out to get the brothers. There's not a vindictive bone in his body. True, the brothers don't understand this, but that's only because their guilt is giving them a bit of a twisted perspective. Now, that's all fine, but there's more going on here than that. And here's how we can look at it. The Apostle Paul in Romans 12 tells us, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. That's verse 20. There's been a lot of discussion uh, about Romans 12, 20. What does that actually mean, to heap burning coals on someone's head? There's those that think this, this means that somehow people will be ashamed, ashamed of how well you treat them. When they've treated you so poorly, yeah, that's possible. 
but I'd say that doesn't quite fit heaping burning coals on someone's head. That's more than being ashamed. Let's take it more literally. Heap burning coals on someone's head. That's pretty sort of painful, destructive. You might not even survive that. Paul's point is this. Someone has sinned against you. They are your enemy. Yeah, you want them to pay. You want them to be destroyed. Do that. But destroy them with your surprising love and mercy. You want them to feel something. To not be so callous. Burning coals. Let them feel your love. Joseph wants his brothers to see. This becomes a theme in the life of Joseph if you continue reading to chapter 50. That there is something greater than their sin. They have such a tough time believing and accepting that. That there is a God who's in control of all things. And within that context, we have the ability and the freedom to show a surprising love and goodness, completely undeserved. There is a love that does not keep a record of wrongs. A love that does not need to constantly bring things up and get some sort of revenge. And that love is what needs to be at the the heart of these brothers. And our hearts too. There is a God who loved us when we were yet enemies. And He's done more than put money back in our sacks. He's given us His one and only Son to be our life and our redemption. He gives us one blessing after another. Does it make you tremble? Who are we to deserve this? But God. But God who is rich in mercy. He makes us His enemies so rich as well. See, look at what the brothers say after this unexpected blessing. Just what is this that God has done to us? They ask. If Joseph could have heard that, I'm sure his heart would have been warmed. Because finally the brothers are beginning to think in terms of God. They're thinking in different categories now. I mean, throughout everything, they could have taken a human perspective on it. They could have simply said, first of all, they were being untreated or treated unfairly. And then with the money in their sacks, they could have said, well, someone made a mistake. If you continue reading the story, you'll see the brothers still need to grow in this. That God rules over it all, that God has a hand in everything. But this is more and more their necessary confession. What is this 
that God has done to us. And that's exactly where we need to be as well. This is how relationships are restored with our God, with each other. Let us learn to tremble before our holy God. Before His judgment, His absolute power over us and our sins. And that we are so completely at His mercy. But let us also tremble before His grace. His so surprising grace. We had no reason to expect it. There's nothing in us that made us so worthy. We were at the mercy of His mercy. The brothers say in verse 28, May that their hearts failed them. May our hearts fail us as well. That our sin is great, yet we also know the greater, astonishing, and even perplexing grace of our God. And let's make that the double theme of our lives. Let's pray for that. For those around us, let's make it clear to others with our words and actions that this is the way of life. So that they too may come to exclaim with us in joy and wonder, what is this that God has done to us? That is the only way that life is restored. Amen.